GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In America, minors mixed up in crime are often tried as adults, receiving lengthy, even lifelong sentences in jails where they face disproportionate harm. But a growing body of science and some recent Supreme Court rulings are slowly leading to reform. And in many ways, the topic of mental health remains taboo in China. Either because of that fact or despite it, a big Broadway musical about bipolar disorder has become a smash hit with Chinese audiences. First up, though. Facebook's oversight board released a momentous ruling yesterday, upholding its ban on former American President Donald Trump. His account had been suspended in January after he called rioters who raided the Capitol building very special and great patriots. The ruling is about just two of Mr. Trump's Facebook posts. But it hits at a far wider concern that for the big social media platforms isn't going away, just what counts as free speech and who gets to define and control it. Yesterday, the majority of the Facebook Oversight Board agreed that two of Donald Trump's posts that he put on Facebook during the the, the riots in the Capitol on January 6th violated Facebook's specific policies against praising individuals committing violence. Hal Hudson is The Economist's technology correspondent. Some of the board also thought that those posts could be interpreted under Facebook's rules against actually inciting violence, subtly different from praising individuals committing it. And ultimately, what they found could have been used to make a much bigger argument for Facebook to keep Trump off of its platform for a longer time. Uh, but that's not what ended up happening. And let's wind back just a bit. What is the, the oversight board here that's, that's making this ruling? The Oversight Board is a kind of uh, pseudo-judicial body that sort of lives within slash above Facebook. They came up with it in 2018, and even though Facebook doesn't like this term, it is colloquially known as the Supreme Court for content. There's about 20 people on it, and its purpose is to kind of interpret Facebook's own rules on a case-by-case basis and judge whether Facebook has upheld them properly. It's a very novel idea within the world of content moderation. Cynics view it as basically a clever attempt by Facebook to deflect responsibility for actually grasping these difficult speech questions and being responsible for their own choices about it. Well, what's your take on that assessment, the deflecting the hard stuff point when it comes to the oversight board's rulings on Mr. Trump's posts? 
I think the hardest stuff is not interpreting the original post. That original post clearly was in violation of Facebook's own terms as written. But the way in which Facebook was maybe looking for some help from the oversight board or some cover for the oversight board, it didn't get it because what Facebook has done is kind of vague banned Trump. They said Trump's off the platform indefinitely and they didn't even want to touch bringing him back on or when they would do that. They wanted the oversight board to rule on all of that. And that is where the oversight board did not give Facebook any cover. The board has thrown that decision back to Facebook and basically said, your own rules about what happens when someone breaks the rules are not good enough for us to interpret. The question of when Trump will come back on Facebook, or even if, has been thrown back to Facebook and the Oversight Board has given Facebook six months to look into the matter and make a predetermination about it. So in a sense, it it is just bouncing things back to Facebook. But on the other hand, that is the oversight board uh, carrying out the role it was given, right? Being an outside body that doesn't just look after Facebook's interests. Yeah, it is exactly that. It is them not overstepping what they feel is a plausible decision for them to make standing on their own two feet. I think a lot of the reason why people feel that the oversight board is a sham is because a lot of people really hate Facebook. There's a one-for-one correlation for people who really hate Facebook and people who think the oversight board is a sham. And those people just think Facebook should be deleted. And that's an argument, you know, you can make that argument, but it's not going to happen. But those same people who simply want Facebook unplugged might be the same ones who who would say uh, Facebook simply needs to be regulated better uh, and, and not just by a sort of a board it appoints. Yeah, and um, they would probably be right. The problem with regulating Facebook more is that Facebook is a speech platform. And particularly in America, everyone is very uncomfortable with the idea of the government making lots and lots of rules and enforcing lots and lots of rules about what people can say in public. In a weird way, the Oversight Board is an attempt to solve that problem without creating unacceptable government constraints on speech. What looks to me like it is happening is that the whole Facebook system is becoming more state-like. So, you know, on the one hand, we're very uncomfortable with the state using its monopoly on force to regulate speech, whether it's on the internet or in public or wherever. But on the flip side, in order to deal with the speech problem, we have Facebook and the oversight board slowly steering themselves into what looks a lot like your traditional judicial legislative executive branch state system. It's not there yet. One way of thinking about it is that all that's happening here is that the Supreme Court is basically telling the executive branch or the legislative branch, depending on how you think about it, that their laws are not good enough. They can't decide on what Trump's sentence should be because there's no guidelines. But in that view of things and and the way the oversight board seems to be working, uh, what does that mean, do you think, for other platforms who are struggling with these same questions and and other jurisdictions where Facebook has, has different struggles of the same sort? The oversight board, in theory, has global jurisdiction, just as Facebook 
is a global platform available around the world. This ruling, you know, obviously only applies to these two Donald Trump posts, but the meat of it that we've been talking about, the bouncing back and forth, the creation of new rules in order to determine how long someone should have been off the platform, that's going to apply globally as and when that happens. As for other platforms, there is no technical crossover between the Facebook Oversight Board and any other platform like Twitter or YouTube. Although people have talked about that as a sort of hypothetical. I think what, what's happened doesn't really change very much for them. It would have changed more if they had allowed Trump back, because that would have put pressure on Twitter, for instance, to also allow Trump back. And so now the ball is back in Facebook's court. In, in the meantime, Mr. Trump has taken to his own website to, to call the decision a disgrace. What does all this mean for him? Trump's banishment to his own website it definitely shows the power that these platforms have. And when you think about that in the context of what's going on with the oversight board, then bouncing this decision back to Facebook, demanding that Facebook make its own rules better, it sort of starts to feel like we're in the foothills of solving this very thorny problem of online speech. Maybe the solution is, Trump, you stay on your own website, you have your speech and that's fine. But maybe the solution is that we keep these hugely powerful platforms and we have a whole new way of making rules about who gets to access them and who gets to use them how, and that those rules aren't going to be made by the government. They're going to be made by the judicial history of this oversight board or equivalents for it on other platforms. And if that is the way that we're going to rule over online speech, it's going to be very weird. Thanks very much for your time, Hal. Thank you, Jason. GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com. In 1986, Abdullah Latif and an older friend of his broke into a house in Philadelphia intending to burgle it. They were unarmed. Mian Ridge is The Economist's US news editor. They were disturbed by the elderly owner of the house who was pushed to the ground as they fled and he broke his femur. A couple of weeks later, he unfortunately died of a heart attack and Mr. Latif was charged with his murder. I was, at the time, had just turned 17 years of age. His parents, acting on poor legal advice, but also their own instinctive feeling that he was innocent, urged him to plead not guilty. It was surreal in a lot of ways. Just have no real sense of what's going on. He was the first child in his county to be tried as an adult and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole at the age of only 17. I enter into what can only be described as a medieval castle. Dark, gloomy, a place of shrill noise, an awful stench. It was as if you're in here now and you fend for yourself and you make it the best way you can. And if you don't, well, you don't. 
He was eventually released aged 51 in 2017. And how is it that the juveniles ended up being tried as adults in America? So it's partly a legacy of the 1990s, when some criminologists warned of this rising generation of young urban super predators who were incapable of being rehabilitated. And that resulted in harsher sentences in most states and more and more children being charged as adults and being sentenced to long sentences and some of those sentences without the possibility of parole, meaning that they would die in prison. In recent years, following some rulings from the Supreme Court and also a growing body of neuroscience which shows that the frontal lobe of the brain isn't fully developed until the age of about 25, meaning that people are still developing critical faculties for impulse control and judgment, which means basically that teenagers are less culpable than adults for the same crimes and they have far greater potential to be rehabilitated. The Supreme Court passed these rulings, which said basically that the harshest sentence for juveniles, life without the possibility of parole, was unlawful except in very rare cases. And it was those rulings that enabled Mr Latif's release. So in that sense, reforms are, are kind of underway already. Yes. Yeah, so since the Supreme Court made these rulings, around half of American states have abolished such laws. Maryland became the most recent to do so at the end of March when it passed the Juvenile Restoration Act, which gets rid of life without the possibility of parole for under-18s and, more importantly, forces a review of all sentences for crimes committed by teenagers after they serve 20 years of their sentence. Louisiana is in the process of pushing through such a law But last month, the Supreme Court ruled against a man who was given a sentence as a juvenile of life without parole. What that means really is that these decisions are now more up to the states than ever before. So the onus is on more states to abolish life sentences without parole for teenagers. And in a more general sense, how are children and young people treated in America's criminal justice system? Well, America is the only country that still charges under 18s as adults and puts them in adult jails where they're far likelier to be assaulted and commit suicide than other inmates. States vary a bit. Maryland, for example, although it's a relatively progressive state, is one of the harsher states when it comes to sentencing teenagers. There's no minimum age for prosecution, so children are routinely locked up before they appear in a juvenile court, even if they haven't been convicted of anything. I spoke to a public defender in Baltimore who told me about a nine-year-old child who recently spent the night alone in a cell after a friend of the teenager who was babysitting her tried to steal a car. And by the time this lawyer reached her, this child was so terrified she couldn't stop shaking. But there is a a, a separate, a parallel juvenile justice system. Why allow young people to get caught up in the adult system in the first place? They're not automatically put in the juvenile system. And in Maryland, for example, for certain crimes, children from the age of 14 are automatically tried as adults. And the onus is then on their defence lawyer to get them moved into the juvenile system. And that doesn't always happen. One lawyer told me about the recent case of a 13-year-old boy who'd been charged with attempted murder after a gang-related shooting from a car that he was riding in. And she tried to convince the judge to move him into the juvenile system. But because of things that the prosecutor said, the child was tried in an adult court and at the age of 14 was sentenced to 40 years in prison. So that is to say that abolishing or or limiting the life without parole is, is not the only reform that this whole system needs. Yes, children are still given long sentences, far more than they are in any other country. They can be tried as adults, which doesn't happen in any other country. And I think the reason is that politicians 
haven't wanted to look soft on crime. You know, even Democratic politicians, certainly in Maryland, which has mostly been run by Democrats for the last couple of decades, have wanted to appear tough on crime. But the momentum is starting to build now. There's one bill that has been introduced by campaigners in Maryland that would remove the governor from parole decisions, for example. Maryland's one of only three states where parole decisions, even those approved by a professional parole board, still needs the governor's sign-off. There's another bill that may be passed soon that would keep children under the 13 away from the courts. And there's lots of campaigning for this. Abdullah Latif, nowadays, since he came out of prison, he's started working for the Campaign for Fair Sentencing of Youth, which is one of the big organisations pushing for more states to act on the Supreme Court's recent rulings. Mr Latif acknowledges, of course, that people need to pay for their crimes, but he points out that abandoning people who were children when they committed crimes in prison with the expectation that they would die there from a very young age is just a further tragedy. It is true that harmed people often harm others, but it's even more true that healed people can help heal others. And the survivor family members who we engage with, the former life sentence children and the family of people who are serving are also committed to that sense of justice, fairness, accountability, but also the right to redemption, hope, and healing. Mian, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Lots of musicals are just jazz hands and jaunty show tunes, but those with surprise topics end up being surprise hits. Consider the tossed chairs of Jerry Springer the Opera or the graphic Muppet sex of Avenue Q. Now a Tony Award-winning musical from 2008, Next to Normal, with book and lyrics by Brian Yorkey and music by Tom Kitt, has become an unlikely hit in China because it deals head-on with mental health issues that remain taboo there. Next to Normal is a play about a woman, a suburban housewife, who suffers from delusions associated with bipolar disorder and has visions of her son who actually died as an infant, so she sees him as a teenager. Roseanne Lake is an economist correspondent and author of Leftover in China. And throughout the course of the play, you meet her very devoted and very desperate husband, Dan, who really wants to help her overcome this grief and depression and even a suicide attempt that she suffers. I am the one who knows you. I am the one who cares. I am the one who's always been there. And throughout the play, you see endless appointments. You know, Diana goes and meets doctors who are equipped to pump her full of all sorts of pills and even suggest electroconvulsive therapy with little regard to her physical and emotional side effects of these medications and and treatments. And it's proved a big hit in America, but not only in America. So Next to Normal opened in Shanghai in March, and it played to sold-out audiences of over 3,000 people a night in Shanghai. It's currently on tour at least until December, and it will reach at least 40 cities in China. I say at least because these things are always changing, and given the popularity of the play, it's expected that we'll actually hit more cities. It's already become one of the most successful works of musical theater ever hosted by the production company, Seven Ages Entertainment, which is also responsible for bringing blockbusters like The Sound of Music and Mamma Mia to China. 
So why do you suppose it is that it's been such a success? I think it's been such a success because it really touched on a topic that is very taboo in China, mental illness. And it's also been surprising that it's been so successful because you have a lot of bits of the play that don't necessarily translate very well. For example, there's this very ironic song that Diana sings about her favorite pills, which is such the tune of my favorite things from Sound of Music. And it goes, Zoloft and Paxil and Busbar and Xanax. These are a few of my favorite pills. And of course, that's incredibly hard to translate into Chinese. But the sentiment behind it, this idea that these pills do take away your feelings, but taking away your feelings isn't necessarily a good thing, even though they're bad feelings, really did strike a chord with Chinese audiences who are used to being told to sweep their feelings under the rug, to not act differently because that's taboo. That is where I think the essence of the success of this play comes from. So it's not so much how this musical depicts mental illness, but that it does so at all. Exactly. This isn't something that you often see portrayed in many places. And a big part of that is, again, because of the taboo nature of mental illness in China and how China is so woefully inequipped to address it. According to a report by the World Health Organization in 2017, there are fewer than nine mental health professionals for every 100,000 people in China. That number's mind-blowing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are more than that, you know, more than that in New York City alone. And the number has increased over time, but the legacy of the Cultural Revolution, where the study of psychology and psychiatry was completely outlawed, still weighs heavily. Under Mao Zedong, anyone with depression or a mental disorder was treated with suspicion and as a potential risk to the People's Republic of China. And this is still being felt. Mental illness for a very long time was considered infectious or evidence of evil spirits and sufferers were placed in facilities against their will. And then you have very insulting terms like fengzi, which means a dangerous person without restraint or a conscience. Surely when you have words like this, it takes several years for this taboo and this misinformation to wither away and for these topics to come to light. And do you think that this musical could not just bring these topics into the discourse, but, but change attitudes as well? I think there's a hope that it will. To coincide with the opening of the play, Seven Ages released a documentary that featured interviews with bipolar patients and their families to help raise awareness and break down the stigma, to just show that these people lived with their families, that their families loved them and that they were able to carry on life. After some performances, they hosted workshops where people could discuss their reactions to the play and get help if they needed to. And there's also this hope that, you know, some of these stories will also end up on the stage, that people will tell their own stories and turn them into art as well. Roseanne, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. GEP AI powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy, managed services, and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. 
Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com.